Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Welcome to Heavy Networking. The show today, VXLAN, EVPN in a multi-vendor environment. And then this topic comes up because... I've heard that there's compatibility problems when you go multi-vendor VXN EVPN, and my brain said, why is this the case? What is happening? This is a standard. We should all be in agreement. You should be able to build a VXLAN EVPN fabric, and it should just work, right? Well, no, not necessarily. And our guest today is Tony Burke. Tony is an instructor. He jumps out of airplanes frequently and uh, is going to share with us some of his knowledge about multi-vendor EVPN and things to look out for and so on. Tony, welcome back to Heavy Networking. Dude, I don't know when the last time was you were on one of the shows, but uh, you, you definitely have been a guest in the past. Yep, yeah, been been on multiple times. Always had a great time. Yeah, but it's been, it's been a little hot minute. Yeah, <laughs> it has been indeed. Has been indeed. All right, man, and uh, and yeah, for people, if if you if you don't know Tony, he really does jump out of airplanes. That's that's like your hobby, right, Tony? Yeah, I, yeah. So I joke. Well, not really joke, but I uh, I, I teach uh, various networking courses, automation, Python, etc. I'm, I'm also a, a skydiving instructor, so I teach people that as well. Ah, what you need is like some kind of a skydiving API where if you're falling and your chute doesn't open, you could query. I don't know. I don't know what that would be like. Anyway, we're here to talk about VXLAN EVPN. So, Tony, let's let's kind of start at the beginning here for folks who aren't running VXLAN EVPN. Give us the high level overview. What is it, what kind of problems does it solve? When would I deploy that sort of a fabric? So just to clarify, the technology that we're talking about is MPBGP EVPN over VXLAN, which is kind of a word salad. Mm -hmm. So when we just we usually just kind of short it to EVPN or EVPN VXLAN. It's a primarily used in the data center, but it's being more and more used in the campus. And it's an encapsulation, it's Ethernet in UDP. And basically what you use it for is you want to do the leaf spine topology where you can have multiple leaves, multiple spines, but you want to support vMotion. I mean, that's pretty much it. Like you can build a leaf spine topology, pure layer three, and it's much simpler, but that environment won't support vM mobility. So no live migration, no vMotion, which I think everyone basically at this point understands that if you want to have a data center topology, especially in the enterprise, you almost always have to do vMotion, support vMotion. So that's what VXLAN brings. And again, the big deal here is you said it is an Ethernet encapsulation inside of UDP. That is the entire Ethernet frame is getting encapsulated in, in a, an IP packet, that's UDP, a VXLAN packet. And we're taking that frame, moving it across the data center somewhere else across layer three, a routed topology, effectively giving us layer two extension, but not in the awful way where we were stretching layer two, instead over a more safe layer three topology that allows us to do away with that horrifying layer two stretch topology. Yeah, it's kind of trying to have our cake and eat it too. Um, it's, it, you know, depending on who you ask, it's still kind of horrifying to stretch layer two in any, any regard, but that's the the data center we're given, and as network administrators and architects, that's what we have to design for. And um, there have been many other attempts in the past. I know, you, you, Ethan, I remember you and I were sitting in front of a brocade demonstration like 10 years ago, and they were, they were demonstrating uh, VCS, which was Trill-based. And then Cisco had FabricPath, and there was a couple other uh, technologies attempting to do what uh, EVPN VXLAN does. Um, but pretty much EVPN VXLAN won out. That's the... Uh, or VXLAN in general went out as a technology. Yeah, those early days, it's funny, 10 years ago. Yeah, uh, Trill was a thing and um, uh, Shortest Path Bridging was a thing. And there were these different ways to make stretching layer two safe so that you weren't doing what I would call fate sharing, where you've stretched this layer two between two environments that should be separate. But yet, if you have a, a broadcast storm, let's say, that is, or a topology yeah. loop that uh, is causing that broadcast storm that brings that network down. You don't want fate sharing where the other network is brought down. And so several different products came to market over the years. Uh, you mentioned Fabric Path, and, and there was the Brocade VCS product, as you said, et cetera. 
But right, where we've ended up is VXLAN has won out. Although we had VXLAN back then, Tony, as an NCAP type, but the EVPN component wasn't there. It used to be, uh, and correct me if I, my memory is uh, fades on the details, but it was multicast flood and learn base so that you could figure out where things were within your VXLAN world. Yeah, so we're stretching layer two, and I, I just wanted to point out that, that VXLAN does not fix fate sharing. You can still have broadcast storms. There's some things to mitigate the risks of that uh, that you can implement, but it's stretching layer two across long distances is still kind of an iffy prospect because you can still have that fate sharing issue. But to the point about uh, VXLAN, yeah. So when VXLAN first came out, it was it was basically just an NCAP and it did flood and learn. And you think about how a, a traditional layer two switch does learning. How does it learn where to forward all the MAC addresses? So when a, when a frame comes into a switch, what happens? You have unknown unicast flooding. Uh, I don't know where this goes. Yeah. I'm going to send that out everywhere. And when I see a response come back, I will then, as the switch, know, ah, that MAC address lives across that port, gets added to the bridging table. Exactly. And VXLAN early on was like that. So a, a frame would come into a switch. It would flood it. If it was an unknown unicast, it would flood it to the ports configured for that VLAN locally. And then it would send it to the other VTEPs, the other uh, VXLAN-enabled leaves. VTEP is just VXLAN tunnel endpoint. Yeah, any device that in-caps and decaps VXLAN packets. So that's where the what's where we take the Ethernet frame and throw a VXLAN header onto it, or we take a VXLAN packet and we pull that header off and we, and we put it back under the wire as just regular Ethernet. Or just as it's originally Ethernet frame. But that flood and learn had a variety of issues. And uh, I guess I, yeah. part of that was just having to deal with multicast, I guess. Yeah. Well, originally, yeah, it was multicast. So you had to have kind of a, it wasn't too difficult. It was a very rudimentary multicast setup that was required, but it was multicast. Mm. So um, if you got an unknown unicast, you'd flood it into any local ports and then you would send it to a multicast group to be distributed to the other VTEPs so they could flood it to their local interfaces. And uh, there's also a way to do what's called head-end replication, where you have a list of VTEPs on, so the packet comes in, or the frame comes into the switch, it's unknown, um, I flood up my local ports, and then I look at my VTEP list and I make a replica of the frame and send it to every one of those configured VTEPs. So I had to, I had to maintain a manual list of the other VTEPs on my network. So that was, it was either multicast or manual lists. And, um, you know, that was one problem. The other problem was there was no routing in this. You had to bring your own router. It's P-Y-O-R, <laughs> bring your own router. And so the, and the, okay, basically we're describing a situation that's untenable in a few different ways. Either it's, un, un, it's not scalable because there's too many manual processes here, or uh, it's just kind of unpleasant uh, to deal with. And... The, this technology evolved to include eVPN. So is this a good time to introduce that, Tony? Yeah, so um, what really made VXLAN a viable platform in the data center was the introduction of MPBGP eVPN VXLAN. Again, just we're just going to call it eVPN. <laughs> yep. eVPN, <laughs> eVPN, of course, can be used. Uh, it's used in other things like MPLS and so forth, but we're talking about eVPN over VXLAN and the particular use case we're talking about is in the data center. So um, what it brought is IRB, integrated routing and bridging. So not only is it stretching these layer two segments so that we can vMotion across our network, across leaves, but it also provides the default gateway for those hosts and routing in between these different layer two segments. So we call that IRB, integrated routing and bridging. People that have been doing networking for a while have seen IRB show up in other, in other ways, but, but this is bringing IRB to this VXLAN environment specifically. Correct. Yeah, we've had, um, you know, w when we talk about this kind of VXLAN technology, there's really, I think there's three big players in this. So we have Cisco ACI, which is VXLAN based, but it's not eVPN VXLAN. So they have their own stuff going on internally. They've got this routing protocol called Coop, and they use ISIS as the underlay. And they actually do use MPBGP for multi-site and multi-pod, but that's a, it's not this mm -hmm. eVPN. And then you have VMware NSX, which is also VXLAN based. It used to be STT based, but then they switched over to VXLAN a while ago. 
Um, and the, of course, those are two vendor proprietary uh, Cisco ACI. You you buy Cisco switches, you run their Apex and so forth, and you got VMware NSX, um, and you buy you get their hypervisors and and so well, there's there's a multi-vendor kind of implementation of a two, I think. Not super familiar with uh, VMware NSX. And then the third one is, of course, MP, BGP, EVPN, VXLAN. So that's the that's the third big player in this space. And it's a um, it's not a single vendor, of course. It's an IETF standard, and it's widely deployed around the world. EVPN is giving us that control plane and a way to learn MAC addresses and, and the other components of the forwarding infrastructure so that you can get around the fabric. It it does away with the multicast component. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Tony. Um, and again, it's that um, standard. Well, yeah. So what, what the, the BGP part of that word salad does is instead of flood and learn, when a leaf um, learns something new, it, it, it gets a, a frame in and it's unknown, then it, what it does is it generates a type two route and distributes it through BGP. And it uses its MP BGP because we have to have the additional address families. Um, and then it distributes this route that includes both the MAC address and the IP address of the host, and also a sequence number that we can increment in case we have a, a, a vMotion event occurring. And that gets distributed to the leaves, and the, the leaves that have a, a local VNI for it will install it into its forwarding tables. You've mentioned the uh, the vMotion use case a few times here and almost made it sound like that's why eVPN <laughs> exists. but one of the things I thought eVPN was also useful for was just multi-tenancy. Is that not a customary use case for, v for eVPN in the real world? It is. You know, in the in the enterprise, we don't tend to think of multi-tenancy a lot. Um, and I think we should probably think of it more often because when we think of multi-tenancy, we think of like Coke and Pepsi, like AWS. You've got Coke, you've got Pepsi. Some of us are old enough to have survived the cola wars of the 1980s, and we, you know, you don't want them to be able to see each other, to sabotage each other, their competitors. And they, but you want to, you want to be able to provide a platform that allows them to do their go about their business. And that's what AWS multi-tenancy is. In the enterprise, multi-tenancy is more like shrinking your blast radius, is shrinking your your fate domain. And with eVPN, you can do multi-tenancy. You can create these layer three VNIs that route between various layer two VNIs, and then you can put them into their own tenants. And those are instantiated as VRFs, uh, typically on the on the device on the VTABs. It's not necessarily about filtering accessibility between tenants. Say say an enterprise scenario where because of PCI requirements, we're going to keep this you know VLAN or you know for, for lack of a better word separate from everything else because it's got data on it related to uh, uh, payment customers, and we need to keep that separate. That's another use case for it as well <laughs> okay. is to do that. That yeah it, that. It can be done. I don't know the status. Um, honestly, I don't know the status of like, um, the, you know, PCI DSS certification. Oh, I mean, there's not real, there's no real like certification of a, a given design. You get a consultant, I think, and they come in and they, they bless the design as either PCI compliant or not. Uh, they'll write an opinion on it. But um, uh, potentially, yeah, that's a use case is that multi-tenancy to split out, you know, do proper segmentation for whatever regulatory or, or um uh, requirement there may be, but also also to just separate your fate in terms of a enterprise. Got it. Okay. Okay. So I think we're understanding the, the the use cases here. Why I would do this? Now you're saying that, that in your your role as an instructor dealing with different customers, more and more folks are deploying VXLAN eVPN. I, sh I should now I have to memorize your word salad version of how to describe that. But the uh, <laughs> but you're saying more and more folks are deploying this, and that that's a realistic thing. Yeah, I think um, what's happening is, is is companies are doing refreshes of their data center switches. They've got the traditional, you've got your core, you've got your aggregation or distribution switches, and then you've got your access switches. And, um, you know, this, that's worked well for 10, 15 years, but that environment has back-to-back -back M lag. You can only have two distribution switches or two aggregation switches. Um, and you have to do back-to-back -back M lags with your access layer switches, and you have to buy chassis for your aggregation switches. 
because you need the redundancy because you can only have two. Mm -hmm. And if you lose one, then you have no more redundancy and you've got 50% of your forwarding capacity. Enter leaf spine. Leaf spine has a lot of tantalizing characteristics to it, including the fact that you don't have to buy, not necessarily have to buy a chassis switch. You can buy like a 2RU or 4RU switch that has like 32, 64, 100 gig ports, or even now 400 gig ports. You buy three of them. If I lose one, then that's um, okay because I still have two left. I've only lost a third of my forwarding capacity and I still have redundancy. If I can, I can still lose another one and still forward traffic. So there's, and you can scale out your spines, you can scale out your leafs. Um, if you have your gateways at your leafs, you have better uh, traffic flows east to west, generally speaking. So there's a lot of advantages to doing it. Um, it does come at a cost though, because in, not in terms of price, but it is more complicated to set up. So there is more, there's more uh, spinning plates, as I heard someone refer to it. <laughs> spinning plates because of, uh, you've got to have a layer three underlay that stitches this thing together. And then yep. the, the VXLAN fabric on top ends up becoming uh, an overlay. It's a tunneling infrastructure across the top of that layer three underlay. Correct. And then you've got to do, um, you've got to configure your VXLAN segments, your VNIs, got to pick between asymmetric IRB and symmetric IRB. Most everyone does symmetric IRB and figure out your tenancy, configure uh, your route targets for each of your VNIs. So there's a lot more components involved. Um, so there's a bit of a learning curve when you're in, when you're getting into it. It's not too bad. Actually, I went into 2020 not knowing any, not knowing much about EVP and VXLAN, and I was able to learn it, you know, pretty quickly. But there is a lot more going on than your traditional back-to-back -back MLAGs. Would I be standing that up by hand, or would I have some fancy piece of software that is building out the VXLAN overlay components for me? Yeah, VXLAN is kind of the line in the sand for automation. It's it's the sort of thing that just smacks you in the head and says, you've got to do, you've got to figure out your automation plan because especially in the data center, we've gotten away with doing these artisanal, bespoke, custom networks, typing them out, handcrafting them, uh, banging out every configuration by hand, maybe using notepad and search and replace to get a little fancy. <laughs> but when you're doing VXLAN, there's so many components that you have to configure and you have to get them all right and it's very easy to make a mistake that you pretty much, if you're going to do VXLAN, you want to have some sort of automation system to deploy it. That could be uh, an open source tool like Ansible. It could be a vendor specific tool like Arista Cloud Vision or Cisco DCNM. But you want to have some sort of automation strategy if you're going to be doing VXLAN, 100%. It just, it's not feasible to operate it by hand. And that's not where the value is. In other words, being able to sit and stare at configuration stanzas and uh, punch all those commands in from memory isn't really where the value is as a network architect. That's, you know, that's the solution you've already oh, yeah, designed. Yeah, you just want to be able to get it up and running. Yeah, you've got a design and you're just going to implement the design. You know, in the, in the data center, we've been implementing design by our fingers and now we need to do it through automation. So it's it's not that big of a deal, but... It is a, a, a change in mindset for a lot of network architects and administrators. Now, you mentioned uh, some automation tools. You said Arista Cloud Vision. You mentioned uh, Cisco's DCNM. And there's other ones out there. Uh, I think Juniper's Abstra plays in this space, too, if I remember right, for example. Does this mean I'm locking myself into an ecosystem if I'm doing a EVPN deployment? So, in, yeah, so this kind of brings around... Um, you know, here's the rub, so to speak. Um, one of the promises, so EVPN VXLAN promises a couple of things. Provi promises the ability to build a leaf spine topology, a true layer three leaf spine topology, and still be able to support vMotion. And that promise has been fulfilled. But another thing that a lot of people talk about when they're talking about EVPN VXLAN, especially when comparing it to ACI or NSX, is its interoperability, the fact that it's an IETF standard. And one thing that I've noticed in just in all the implementations that I've seen is no one, well, you know, it's you and I both know it's very hard to say anything absolute in the networking world because there's always exceptions. But generally speaking, there's not a lot of multi-vendor EVPN fabrics being built. No, yes. And now, I haven't dug through the EVPN RFCs uh, in, in much detail, but historically with the RFCs, what happens is it gets tied up in specific language where 
the words must, should, and can, or you know, basically you're allowed to give enough flexibility and in your interpretation of the standard that how one vendor does it could be different enough from how another vendor does it that even though they're both quote unquote standards compliant, they are not interoperable. Yeah, or not all the features are interoperable. A couple of examples uh, just that I've run into is, let's take bum frames, broadcast, unknown unicast, multicast. So while MP, BGP, EVP, and VXLAN takes care of, you don't have to do flood and learn in order to do learning. So I don't have to flood for learning, but I do have to flood some stuff. I have to, there's some frames that just need to be flooded. So how do I get the flooding going on? So a, a, a frame enters a leaf and it needs to be flooded. How do I, how do I do that? So the standard actually says you can do head end replication or you can do multicast and not every vendor supports both. Head end replication, just make a copy of it and send it out everywhere. Um, multicast actually Correct. put it, make it part of a, uh, something that's going to get forwarded to members of a multicast tree. Exactly. So that part of the standard allows for both. We're, we're all very familiar, or most of us are very familiar with MLAG. So Cisco's got VPC, Arista's got MLAG, the different vendors call it different things, VLAG, uh, whatever, usually two switches and you make them appear to be a single switch from a spanning tree perspective, from an LACP perspective, et cetera. One of the cool things about MP, BGP, EVP, and VXLAN such a word salad, is that um, there's a new uh, couple of route types that allow you to build a, um, think of it as a, a routed distributed MLAG without having to do MLAG peers or any kind of MLAG configuration. So I could, from a host perspective, like let's say a hypervisor, I build a port channel or I build a lag between my hypervisor and two different leafs. Theoretically, those two leafs could be two different vendors and they don't have an MLAG between them. So these are type one and type four routes that allow this to happen, but not every vendor implements that. Um, so it's a it's kind of a case of um, one of the challenges is if you if I want to build a multi-vendor network, I have to go down to the least common denominator of the functionality that they provide. Mm, that's always the story. And we never did standardize any MLAG stuff at all. So to have some implementation of it within uh, EVPN makes one feel hopeful. Uh, well, you're getting a similar, yeah. it's not MLAG, right? You're getting a, a similar kind of a result, uh, I think would maybe be yeah. a better way to describe yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, yeah. And you can, you know, another cool thing about it is that you could potentially host, you know, MLAGs are typically um, relegated to just two devices. I can only build, a, a, you know, port channel, virtual port channel, MLAG, whatever. I could only build it between two devices. But with this, with, uh, e with it's called BGP multi-homing. Um, you can do it to three or four or five or, or however many leaves you want. Um, and actually, I learned about that from packet pushers. I, I didn't even know that that was a thing until I was <laughs> listening to one of the, ep I don't remember which episode, but they were talking about um, uh, routing Ethernet segments, which is basically um, that kind of distributed port channel or distributed lag. Well, and the result of the lag here is uh, ECMP. Is that the, the, the big idea in your mind? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just becomes a multi-destination. So if I want to send a packet from one side of my network to a host, it will show up as, you know, if I'm, if I'm uh, connected to three different devices, it'll show up as a multi-destination route and it'll get hashed to one of those, you know, one of those uh, leaves. And so I got ECMP going into the leaf and then, or into um, the host through any of the leaves that are advertising that ethernet segment. And then the, the host just hashes its packets on the way out. So the host doesn't know anything's different than, it, than with an MLAG. It just builds a, a lag and um, you can run LACP on it or you can do a static lag. So packets get divided going out of the host and then packets get divided coming into the host through uh, ECMP. But we're saying that the BGP multi-homing feature is not consistently implemented across different vendor EVPN. And so in a multi-vendor scenario, I might not be able to use this? Correct. There's definitely some situations where you can't because not all the vendors support it or not all the vendors support it on all their hardware platforms. So backing up a second, just to think of EVPN broadly, we've dug into a, a couple of specific features. We talked about um, how uh, bum frames are handled. We've talked about BGP multi-homing here. Just in general, do we have broad uh, agreement where I could, like I'm I'm sending type ones and types fours, type twos, that's going to be understood by B 
BGP receivers? They're all going to look at those the same and interpret them the same, or do we even have trouble there? Well, as, as far as I know, that seems to be pretty solid. Like one potential way that we could do a multi-vendor implementation today is having one vendor at the, at the leaves and a different vendor at the spines because the spines don't instantiate any local VLANs. They don't, you know, in a traditional deployment, the spines are just transit. They're just IP forwarding, but they also have to distribute the routes. So we're not, we're not dealing with the data plane here. We're just dealing with the control plane. And that, at least with the type two, the type three, and the type five routes seems to be pretty consistent. But at the same time, if you're a person responsible for a data center, and you've got vendor A as your lease, and you've got vendor B as your spines, and you do an upgrade of your spines because maybe a security vulnerability came out or you, know, you had to do an upgrade, are you confident that it's not going to adversely affect your leafs in terms of those routes being exchanged, whether it's eBGP or IBGP or whatever? So you know, th there, there have been attempts to do interoperability testing. There's... Um, I sent you a couple of links that we can probably put. In, you can probably put in the show notes of um, these kind of like connection fast. What do they call those um, connection parties? Yeah, they're basically just taking all the vendors and plugging them to all the other vendors to see what breaks. Yep. And uh, and uh, so the, you know, it's in researching this. Um, uh, someone forwarded. It was on the networking Reddit actually. Someone forwarded me those links, and I was grateful for it. And it actually, the, the situation was a little bit better than I thought. But at the same time, I'm like, well, that's great that in that environment, they were able to plug these weird vendors into each other. But what about my data center? Am I going to trust that um, the interoperability is going to work when I do upgrades on one vendor and a, and a different vendor? You know, that's kind of a, that kind of gives me pause as someone who's been responsible for these networks before. Well, it occurs to me that this, this is an ASIC thing in part, Tony, because to be able to forward VXLAN frames at wire speed, you've got to have an ASIC that can do those end caps and decaps. You got to have a chip that's doing that for you to get the performance out of it. Yeah. So if in that ASIC, some capabilities just not there for whatever the reason is, and, and it could be that the standards are 90% implementable, but when that ASIC was designed, there was something that you know, wasn't a thing at the time and became a thing later. But so your particular piece of hardware maybe can't handle that uh, EVPN feature. Yeah, that's you know that, that comes to case of the lowest common denominator, which is something we saw a lot in Fiber Channel. Is um, you know Fiber Channel had kind of the same problem. Is that there's Fiber Channel. We think of it as like a Fiber Channel switch, and we a lot of people in the networking world equate it to just like a layer two switch. Well, it's actually a full suite of protocols that would have analogs to layer two forwarding to layer three routing. There's a routing protocol in fiber channel. There's a DNS service, a name service, uh, distributed configurations, et cetera. There's so many moving parts that pretty much 99% of the time when you built a fiber channel fabric, you either use Cisco or you use Brocade. Those were the only two manufacturers of fiber channel switches for, for a while. And it still, still basically is. Although Brocade got bought by Broadcom. So, um, so you have the ASICs as, as lowest common denominators. You have management. You know, the, you know, Cisco and Arista, their command lines are pretty similar. But what if I've got Juniper? So hmm. is my staff that's going to be maintaining all this. Are they going to be are they going to be comfortable day to day with Cisco and Juniper or Arista and Juniper or Cumulus, which is a, another one of the the common EVPN VXLAN vendors? You know, it, it's one of those things where the standard says, yeah, you could do it, but is it necessarily the a good idea? To well, and let's talk about that then. When is it a good idea? Why would I want to do a multi-vendor EVPN? Now, one scenario. You, you mentioned already that hit me is where, where I've heard of folks doing this. That is, you got one vendor on the spine and maybe someone else at the leaves or maybe multiple someone else at the leaf layer. I don't know, growth over time, especially in a large fabric, I could see that as a possibility. Is that something you see often? I've, I've never seen that. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've, I've never seen it. I've never even seen different leaves and spines. I've seen... Um, I've seen companies when they go when they design an EVPN network, they're basically just about everyone um, assumes that it's going to be a single vendor. I have seen companies build out two data centers with two different vendors, 
in order to provide kind of that, um, in case one vendor's implementation just goes completely bonkers, you've got another vendor that's not affected because it's a completely different vendor, completely different code and, and so forth. But so even that's- They protect themselves that the, way. Even that's a separate data center though. It's not separate pods within a data yeah. center. Correct. It's a separate data center or even if it is in the same data center, they're, they're, like you said, they're separate pods and they only communicate directly through traditional layer three or layer two means. As in the MPBGP control planes aren't interfacing uh, at that level? Correct. Yeah. yeah, we're just either routing or just straight up switching. We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, training's never stopped for me because sometimes I'm going for cert. Sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nuggets specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which, which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface, digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal. They are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some, some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. Well, I think we just explained part of what the multi-vendor thing is. There's not a hugely compelling reason to run multi-vendor. Now, let's say you're, you're a hyperscale provider and you buy switches by the pallet load as your data center grows. Even in that scenario, it sounds like we're not seeing you know, the multi-vendor thing, even though from certain of the automation vendors, that was something they touted. Yep, we can stitch together your multi-vendor EVPN environment. We don't really care as long as it meets... This kind of hardware with this kind of software on it, we can make it all run together and it all look transparent. Only no one's asking for that. Yeah, and then the the uh, the hyperscalers. Gen I mean, you know, this is kind of a generalization, and I'm not super tuned into that world. But uh, the usually, like you know, Microsoft, they they buy hardware switches from multiple vendors, I believe, but they run Sonic on it, so that's their yes. own operating system. Yep. So that kind of takes out. Um, you know, if you buy, if you if you build an EVPN fabric from from uh, Cisco, or you build one from Arista, you can have multiple types of chips inside of them. Like I could build um, an EVPN fabric from Cisco that has uh, Broadcom chips in them and has the Cisco CloudScale ASICs in them. Or uh, from Arista, I could build chips that have like the Tridents, the Tomahawks, and the Jerichos. So um, there's the hardware itself. Again, you run into the lowest common denominator issue. Does the chip support VXLAN routing? Does the chip support BGB multi-homing, which all the Broadcoms do um, after a certain level? But it's the software and how they interact, how their timers work, how their or interpretations, the features, the software features. Yeah, so it's a, it's a whole mess. Well, not really a mess, but it's a, <laughs> no, there's you, a lot you of it right. spinning plates. it's a mess, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what do you want as a network administrator, as a network architect who's responsible for making sure host A can get to host B in your data center, and when they can't, it's a big, big issue, is you want simplicity. So 
that tends to run into us just going with one vendor. And, um, you know, the cynics might say, well, these are just the vendors doing a cash grab. Like the, the vendors are purposely disabling features so that you have to go with them. And, um, you know, for some aspects in this industry, that's probably the case, but I don't think it's the case here. I, I, think, it's, I think it's the customers driving that single vendor implementation just for purely operational simplicity. I can test, I can, um, uh, I know how the, all, all the stuff is configured. I know what the configurations look like. I, I know the environment very well and I can do interoperability testing or not, inter I can do um, acceptance testing. I can do labbing and so forth. So I think that's what's driving this single vendor tendency that we have. But it begs the question, going back to the very top of the show, Tony, you, you mentioned that MP, BGP, EVPN, VXLAN, that is an alternative to a different way we can build out uh, layer two adjacencies uh, across a layer three fabric like Cisco ACI and VMware NSX. If I'm going to get stuck into a single vendor environment anyway, because all the different reasons we've been talking about, doesn't that kind of open the door back up a bit to go with something that tr is truly vendor proprietary like ACI or NSX? You know, I, I think one of the things that people say when they talk about choosing EVP and VXLAN is that that very case, well, like where you're not locked into a vendor. Well, lock-in, proprietary, all that gets thrown around a lot. And I think a lot of cases unfairly, sometimes fairly, but I think a lot of cases unfairly because let's say I adopt Ansible as my management, as my configuration platform. It's, it's open source. I can run Ansible across a million nodes and never pay anyone a dime for that. But I'm locked into Ansible. If I want to, if there's going to be a cost in terms of time and research and testing, if I want to move from Ansible to like Terraform or something else. So we're always locked into something. And that's just the, the nature of what we do. We, we have to kind of pick a course and then stick with it. And then if we have to change course, you know, if, if, if I've got one platform and I decide I don't like it, then I've got to go with a different platform. But that's going to take selling hardware and so we're always locked in, is, is what I'm saying, to some extent. I don't disagree with you at all. I think I've written about this uh, somewhere along the way for, for exactly the reasons you cite. At some point, you, you're really locked into something. Even if it's, you know, in a practical way, you could step back and go, oh, well, as long as I use the OSPF routing protocol, that's pretty you know, standard. Everybody runs that. I'm not locked in there. Yeah, okay. But the deeper you get into your network topology and whatever the solution is you're building for your business, you do end up having to standardize on a variety of things, if not just for dealing with one vendor and dealing with one set of support and having some expectation that it's all going to work together, just the practicality of being able to support the stupid thing. Tony, you, you contrasted uh, the Cisco Arista style CLI with the Juniper CLI, which is very different. Okay, well, if you've got whatever skill sets you've got on your network engineering team, if they don't know that Juniper CLI, it's the first thing time they've ever seen that, it is a learning curve. It's learnable, lots of people have done it, but it is impactful to your operations in such a way that you go, well, for what benefit? And if you don't have a huge benefit that you're gonna gain, maybe that's a decision point where you just don't bother. And again, you're kind of locking yourself into what you're familiar with. Uh, on an operational level. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do think the more proprietary the technology, it just, I don't know, man, it feels a little bit scary because there's no standard to fall back on. You're completely reliant on the vendor to fix the NSX bugs, the ACI bugs, whatever. Uh, whereas if it's a standards driven thing, you'd hope the fact that that's all built out in the open with open community and such that those problems would be resolved more quickly, but still we're, we're in that locked in world in some level or another, because we got choices we got to make, Tony. Yeah. And the, I agree with you hundred percent in that we've, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we do have to make that choice and that um, it's not a scary thing. Well, it, it's a thing that we have to take into account when choosing a platform, knowing that, you know, if we have to course correct, it's going to take time and money in order to do so. But I think one of the things that, you know, people talk about VXLAN, uh, EVP and VXLAN is, oh, it's an open standard, so you're not locked in. Well, I, I don't know if I agree with that statement anymore because, um, you know, you, you're not locked in in terms of, it is an open standard, but you're still going to 
practically speaking, you are locked into a particular vendor. You make you made a choice. You, you maybe did a proof of concept or a proof of value, and you take a look at uh, Arissa's implementation, Cisco's implementation, Juniper's implementation, Cumulus's implementation. You did, you took a look at all those factors, the costs, the support, and all that, and you just you made a choice, and you bought a bunch of kit from one vendor. So you kind of are locked in at least for the life cycle of that hardware, and then your opportunity to course correct is uh, on the hardware refresh. For people that are thinking about EVPN as a possible solution for their enterprise data center, maybe even for their campus, as we said, there's some use cases for that. There's one thing I want to roll back to that we mentioned early and didn't dive into, Tony, and that is we were talking about fate sharing and made the point that, hey, with some of these, the point is, uh, or part of the point is you can have layer two be quote unquote stretched, but ha still have some control over your fate sharing. You made a point there that uh, but you gotta, you gotta configure it right. You gotta make sure that you're actually taking care of that problem because you can still have fate sharing if you're running VXLAN EVPN, it's not magic. Can you qualify that a little bit for folks that are thinking about this? Yeah, and I, I run into this in all the technologies, by the way. So um, I, I most, uh, I most in, come into this with Cisco ACI because Cisco ACI has multi-pod and multi-site, um, especially with multi-site. Um, uh, there's a little checkbox, and you have the same thing in, in EVP and VXLAN, but it's not a checkbox, but it's a little checkbox says, do we do, are we extending the broadcast domain between these two data centers for this particular segment? Which means, can I vMotion from one DC to the other DC? That is a shared fate. There's no way, no way around that. Any, any time that, a, you know, that I've got a broadcast domain in one data center, and I extend it to another data center, no matter what technology I use, whether it's OTV, VXLAN, EVPN, ACI, whoever, now I'm sharing my fate and I can have something happen in one data center affect the other one. And this is a whole other discussion, but one of the things that I, I talk about is like, do you actually need to vMotion between these two data centers or do you just need the same IP space in these two data centers? for something like Site Recovery Manager from VMware. So if I have a data center go down, I spin up the same VM in a new data center, it sees the same IP, and I just handle how I get packets to it through you know, load balancers or Lisp or something like hmm. that. Any connection between one AWS region and another one is purely layer three. Because again, because of fate sharing, yeah. Yeah. So here's a question about what happens if you extend that broadcast domain, which would only affect one, VLAN VNI pair uh, between the two. Are you still going to be clobbering the entirety of a data center because of what so often happens when a switch control plane is subjected to a broadcast storm? It's got so many packets it's got to deal with. It just it, CPU maxes out and your your adjacencies begin to fall over. Um, are we in a situation? Yeah, there's. I mean. I mean, there's protections that you can take and different vendors have different style of protections. You've got control plane policing. You can limit the number of routes you have coming in, um, you know, maximum routes or whatever. But, uh, you know, there's still always something, you know, it, it, lack of our imaginations that could cause an issue there. So um, it is done. And uh, the chances of something bad happening are, are not super high, but... You know, it, it does happen from time to time. And it's one of those deals where the worst case scenario was so bad, you really don't want to do that if you don't have to. Have to usually means something like, this application is something we must support in this particular way, and so we have to stretch a layer two between the data centers. Although going back to what you were saying, it doesn't necessarily mean you having, you're extending the broadcast domain. Uh, it could be you just bring up the IP in the other data center, and, and but they're for all intents and purposes, separate VLANs, even though it's the same IP address space. Yeah, and and a, and a lot of people, especially from the server world, from the virtualization world, don't know that don't know that, that there's a difference. So they think that we need to support vMotion between two sites. So what I usually say is that people think that they want the ability to vMotion, but what they really want is just the duplicated duplicate IP space. So that if a VM wakes up, it's like you know going to uh, there's certain hotel chains that the rooms look exactly the same no matter where you are. So I could wake up in Sioux Falls and be in the same room as if I woke up in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, we, I think we both probably stayed a lot in hotels like that. So it's, <laughs> is the environment the same? I have had that experience of waking up in the morning going, I do not remember what city I'm in right now. This hotel room looks the same as all the rest of them. <laughs> I have had that experience. 
so Tony, let, let's let's close this way. If you, Tony Burke, you are designing a, uh, let's say it's two data centers geographically separate, and you're going to do uh, a VXLAN EVPN implementation, um, g give us some sense of how you might design it. You don't have to make specific vendor requirement uh, uh, requirements necessarily, but just give us your thoughts. Well, I, I, you know, it, it all, of course, it all depends on the network uh, requirements. I would not really care if they wanted to have the same IP space in both locations. You know, I can, as a network architect, I can deal with that. Um, I would push back as much as I could with the notion that I have to be able to vMotion from one data center to the other. There's a whole video on YouTube called uh, Long Distance V-Motion as a Dumpster Fire. <laughs> and it kind of overlay, it kind of goes over some of the, the issues that come along with that, you know, doing that V-Motion. There's a lot of hoops that the network administrator has to jump through just to get that thing to work. You've got hairpinning traffic, inbound traffic, outbound traffic. Can't uh, send a host route across, a, uh, you know, an internet hearing connection. You know, who's going to take a slash 32 on the public BGP table? Right, slash 24 is usually as small as you get to go, yeah? Yeah, I mean, if, it, if we did allow slash 32s, we're already almost at a million right, routes right now, right? Or have we already passed a million? I think we just passed a million, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, imagine if we did 32s, it would go, you know, 10, 20 million. Anyway, so yeah, we've I would push as hard as I can against V-motioning between two different data centers, especially if they're really far apart. There's almost no benefit to it from an application perspective, usually. Well, would you, would you have separate vendors in each data center or would you tend for operational consistency to keep it all uh, under one, one vendor, one uh, approach? One of the things is we don't have really have a lot of data yet to know whether or not that doing a two vendor approach is going to be better than a one vendor approach. Mm. And there's certainly arguments to be made for both. And there's not really an interoperability problem there. It's a management issue. I've got two different platforms. How similar are they? You know, if it's Cisco and Arista, that's not a big deal. But if it's Arista and Juniper, you know, then I've got to make sure that my staff is trained on both platforms, which is, like you said, it's it's not unlearnable. It's, you know, everyone can configure a Cisco device, can configure a Juniper device. They just have to learn the syntax. Or does it make sense to be operationally more simple and just have one platform? I don't know. I, it's a question I don't know the answer to, and I don't think we have a lot of good data. No, I gave you an open-ended scenario on purpose because I wanted to hear your mental wanderings exactly like this for this reason, because that that is exactly yeah. the point. It does depend heavily. There is no one right answer. Uh, I think another point yeah. to raise, Tony, is if you do stick with one vendor across, you can probably unify your operations under, let's say you go Arista and you put everything under Cloud Vision. There's some operational advantages to being able to do something like that versus, oh yeah, I'm logging into the St. Louis data center today and that is the Cisco one, meaning I got to bring up this other console and think about it you know, that way. And you've got different logging and different, a lot of things potentially different about that, again, for what benefit? Now, there might be business reasons where there is a benefit in doing that. There might be very uh, regulatory-driven reasons you might have to do something like that. Um, but should you? It, it Again, going back to your point, Tony, it depends. Yeah. And if, and if someone made the choice that they're going to go with one vendor for two data centers, or someone made the choice to go to two different vendors for a data center, I'm not going to really argue against either of those. I'm not going to be like, no, that's a that's a terrible idea. You know, of course, like you said, it depends. But I think uh, both choices are are valid. Both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. Now, if I have knowledge of operating EVPN in, let's say, a Cisco environment, and now I move over to an Arista environment, how much of my knowledge about EVPN that I learned from working in that Cisco shop will translate when I move over to, in this example, Arista? The fundamentals are the same for both. And so this is an advantage that I don't think people talk about is that if you learn EVPN VXLAN for one platform, you've learned for them all. I mean, the syntax and the configurations are different. The way you configure it on Arista and Cisco is even different, even though their command lines are very similar. Um, the way you configure it on Juniper, of course, is very different. Same with Cumulus, but the concepts are, are the same. The terminology is the same. You've got VNI. You've got layer two VNIs, sometimes called VRFs. You've got layer three VNIs if you're doing symmetric IRB. They're sometimes called IP VRFs. And you've got type two routes, type three routes, type five routes for most of your operations. And then if you're going to do the BGB multi-homing, you've got type one routes, four routes. 
Then there's a whole like six through 15 for uh, overlay multicast. So that's client multicast, not underlay multicast. So if you learn for one, then the skills are going to carry over for another. And it helps me get some insights into how ACI works. So ACI is IRB and shares a lot of commonality with how MPBGP VPN works. There's some differences, of course, that the routing protocols are different, but they, they have a layer three VNI. They have two VNIs. You have to map a VNI to a local VX, uh, to a local VLAN. That's a requirement. Um, and they use yeah. So the more you know about EVPN, the better off you are in the data center today, I think. I think if you're a data center operator, architect, engineer, whatever, um, and you don't know EVPN yet, I would learn it because um, you know, it's one of those things you're going to see it more and more. Tony, thanks for your time today. This has been an excellent discussion. I love nerding out like this. Uh, how can people follow you on the internet? So I'm on um, uh, Twitter at tburke. That's at T-B-O-U-R-K-E. I mostly complain about things on there and talk some tech stuff. You can find me on Instagram. That's mostly skydiving stuff. That's Tony.B-O-U-R-K-E on Instagram. Uh, I also blog infrequently. I think that's probably something that everyone says on these, <laughs> you know, bloggings done infrequently um, uh, at datacenteroverlords.com. Thank you again, Tony. This has been fantastic. I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter, ethancbanks.com. You can find out everything you want to know about me. I've been blogging more regularly, and I don't know how long that's going to last, but I'm going to keep at it. You can find this show, Heavy Networking, and many more of our fine freak technical podcasts, including The Network Break, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, and Day 2 Cloud, along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, we have a Slack group that's free. Go to packetpushers.net slash Slack. Read the rules. There's three of them. So you know how to participate and be a good Slack person and uh, join. It's it's great. Vendors, uh, independent folks, everybody's welcome. Just uh, read the rules and, and join the Slack group. And uh, we have a newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. That's at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. We don't sell your names or anything to anybody. We just send you good stuff each week that we find on the internet. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.